I named this episode The French Paradox because it would be the zenith of a conversation that would be the beginning of a string of events that would lead me down a rabbit hole and turn my world upside down. Many of the names in these episodes are changed to protect the anonymity of the people, but the stories are very true. And for me, everything that I had went through had been to lead me to this point, but nothing could prepare me for it. It's so interesting that when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. So I would love it if you would join me on this journey. not going where you might think it is. And there is a huge twist at the end. So be very careful. I, um, everything, everything that we've talked about up to this point, every story that I've told, every piece of information that I've given is really leading to something that was a bit of profound insight for me. And it's, it's really difficult to tell you without telling you, but, uh, every piece of it is just leading to this culmination that we're about to come to. That said, this phone call that I got was way too early for me. Uh, I was like swimming in my bed. I don't know if you have that feeling of where you just wake up and almost in this state of panic and you are swimming around and feeling, and it's like, you know, what the heck is going on? Am I drowning? And I literally fell out of the bed reaching for my phone, which was hilarious to uh, everyone that I've told it to, but it wasn't so funny to me in that moment. And I answer the phone finally, and it is my mentor, who, mind you, really dislikes when I call him that. Uh, uh, really dislikes, like, really. But... I find that um, absolutely amusing, so I just keep calling my mentor. Anyway, so he asked me a question that would really set the precedence of that day and the subsequent days. And the question was, um, what are you doing with your day? Now, first of all, I want to tell you that uh, it was probably about 4 o'clock or something like that. And at that time, the sun was not up where I was at. And so I was saying to him, technically, for this to be called a day, the sun would need to be up and it is not up. Why are you? And his answer to me was the sun is up where I'm at. And second of all, you need to understand son that, uh, all successful people are up before four 30. Now I'm not going to say that he's right about that. What I'm going to say is that every book that I have read about self-help and, um, effective habits, things like that whatever, basically confirm what he was saying. And uh, even though that's very interesting, it's not something I'm interested in doing per se. Plus my, my work schedule was, was a little off. Uh, just when I was learning and reading and, and doing my research, uh, I tended to be a little quieter in the evening 
you know, when Pops laid down, things of that nature. But nonetheless, he had a good point. So he goes into this next question, which uh, really kind of uh, was a catalyst for the direction we were going to move. He says, son, tell me about ROS, whatever you know about ROS. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, what exactly is he looking for? doesn't matter. I get an opportunity to display my mumbo jumbo, which is what I call my medical jargon. And this is an awesome opportunity because I love to inflate my ego. And um, so here we go. I'm like, uh, by the way, buckle up. So I say, well, it's reactive oxygen species. And those are molecules that act as oxidative stressors on the mitochondria inside of the cell, effectively drying the cell out, making it age and bringing it to a state of apoptosis, cellular death. And then I say, well, um, generally, this ROS affects places like the kidneys, it affects uh, anywhere, I mean, any organ. That it gets to, ROS is usually the problem, these reactive ox oxygen species. He says, well, what is the relationship between ROS and metabolism? And I answer as quick as I can that the faster the metabolism is, the more ROS that gets created. So there tends to be this sort of relationship between the two. He says, now tell me about the metals, the heavy metals, specifically in the brain. Now, that's an area that I'm stumped. I know a little bit about the heavy metals in the brain, but not that much. So I could just tell you that there are heavy metals in the brain and that they, the heavy metals like iron, I could say that, um, just kind of move around the brain as free radicals. And he says, so you must understand that these free metals act as irritants for ROS. They act almost as catalysts, uh, kind of rapidizing the process. Okay, all right. Now tell me about ROS and the central nervous system. And specifically, uh, tell me about why these ROS are attracted to the central nervous system. Also, tell me about inflammatory markers and why they're important in this process. All right, here we go. Early in the morning and I'm getting the pop quiz from the professor. But it's cool because this is all I've been doing for the last, I don't know how many months. And something like this, walk in the park. Let's go. Um, so the ROS is attracted to the central nervous system because the central nervous system is full of visceral tissue or fats, just like the brain. And ROS do very well in areas of visceral tissue like fat. And the ROS rises in the central nervous system and in the brain over time as you age and it becomes harder to fight. The anti-inflammatory the inflammatory markers are the TNF-alpha and the TGF-beta and these inflammatory markers are ways for us to tell what the inflammation in certain areas such as the central nervous system or the brain are. So it basically will tell us that these areas are inflamed. Now, the more inflamed something becomes, the more useless it becomes. That's important. So he jumps into this idea. And I hope that you stayed with me up to now because this right here was something that I found a lot of offense to. He says this oxidative stress that occurs in the central nervous system and in the brain 
is actually what leads to ALS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and these sicknesses or illnesses that come out of the central nervous system. All right, time out. Fun fact. There are three contributions to Alzheimer's. There's the blood flow, what we'll call the glucose levels. There is the senile plaque of amyloid beta, and there are the neurofibrillary tangles. Now, if you haven't done any research at all on Alzheimer's, I'll break that down really quickly, but I would definitely suggest for you to go and get the book Alzheimer's Disease, Dementia, and Memory Loss, uh, our free ebook right there on our blog at findthewellspring.org. But I'll give you a, a, a quick synopsis of these. Yeah, especially if you're dealing with Alzheimer's, concerned with dealing with Alzheimer's, or you know someone dealing with Alzheimer's, this is relatively important. At least I thought it was. First, the blood flow thing. You need to have enough blood flow and you need to have enough of the right blood flow. That means there needs to be enough nutrients in this blood flow. Um, the second thing, the senile plaque. Basically, whenever the neurons are trying to communicate with each other, they do so through synapses. There's a space between the synapses called the synaptic gap. And the way that these synapses in the brain, these neurons in the brain, talk to each other is through something called amyloid beta, which tends to be made up of a number of enzymes. And this particular amyloid beta occasionally will um, kind of cluster up in, between the synapses. And when it does that, it can reach something called the tipping point. And what that is, is where it has gotten so clustered up and so busy in there uh, that the two synapses are no longer able to communicate. And now your neurons can't communicate with each other and that neuronic pathway is dead and that will block people from being able to have things like memories, facial recall, fine motor skills, things of that nature, supposedly. Okay, that's the theory, that's the idea. Now, neurofibrillary tangles, that's the real problem. Let's talk about neurofibrillary tangles. There's something in the neurofibrillary tangles called tau protein. Tau protein um, is basically what is like a skeleton for the microtubules that are in the, the synapses. And it holds things together. Just look at it like a skeleton holding everything together. Now, when that tau protein reaches a phosphorization level, in which it slowly stops doing its job. It's almost like the skeleton falls out of place. Think of it like that. It falls off, right? Then these microtubules kind of clump together. Think of like big masses of gum. And now this neuron, not able to communicate with anything, sort of dies and just floats aimlessly. And now you have these clusters or clumps of um, neurofibrillary tangles which are made up of microtubules and tau protein that are just rattling around in the brain causing havoc, okay? Now, those, those neurons are really dormant. You just, you cannot use those. So the thing about the amyloid beta, it's possible to clear that out and then have the synapses be able to reconnect and recommunicate. But when you think about a neuron all shriveled up and the tau protein out of place and all this, I mean, you're pretty much, it's a wrap. Okay. Now, most of the science leads to this. Alzheimer's, the symptoms of Alzheimer's are, are a result of the neurofibrillary tangles. So if you're not officially asleep at this point, I want you to just understand there are three major points, blood flow, senile plaque, neurofibrillary tangles, and the major contribution to Alzheimer's and the signs of Alzheimer's, such as memory loss, are the neurofibrillary tangles. So the key there 
is tau protein now when he starts talking about oxidative stress and all this extra stuff dealing with the alzheimer i cannot wait to try and tell this professional neurologist doctor <laughs> what the real contributions are and he says something completely um it's it, like for me it's super interesting and mind-blowing but before he does it he just he lets me ramble on like an idiot and then he says once i'm done with my um attempt to sound intelligent he says son god gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason i'm telling you i like this guy and he goes into listen the tau protein goes through the phosphorization process through a process called acetylation. That's what leads to the phosphorization, is acetylation. Acetylation is a result of the oxidative stress. Ah, so in fact, the oxidative stress is the real root of the problem. Okay, okay. So now, this is the trick, he says. We need an anti-inflammatory and an antioxidant. The antioxidant is going to get rid of that oxidative problem that we talked about. And the anti-inflammatory is going to reduce the inflammation so we can then use whatever the thing is that we're trying to use. For example, the neuron, the kidney, whatever. Okay. So that's the trick. Those two things. So he says, the body produces a nat natural anti-inflammatory. It's called SIRT1. Now we need a way to induce that natural inflammatory and reduce the ROS. I'm telling you, there is a chemical that will do both. And I'm like, and what that will do is it will prevent the degeneration of the nervous system. It's the whole point of what we're talking about. The degeneration of the nervous system. This is what leads to ALS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. Focus. All right. How are we going to do that? Son, I am not here to give you a fish. Okay. You're here to give me a pole. No. I'm here to teach you how to drain the lake. Whoa. Okay, well, let's drain the lake. Where do I start? <laughs> Son, you got a 500-page book that's been sitting on your dresser collecting dust. Start there. You also have this endless well of information that we've already given you access to. Start there. I'm like, I really don't even understand what the point of this is. You know that I don't have a lab now. Um, I don't I don't have anywhere to test my stuff. I don't have a packaging company. He says, son, who do you think you're talking to? What do you think we do? You have access, you will have endless access to everything you need, but you've got to start in the right place. I need you to listen to what I'm trying to teach you. Okay. Let's go. So, phone hangs up. Actually, he hangs up on me. He does that a lot. That's not the point, though. The point is that I pick up this book um, and I start to read after blowing it off and uh, 
coughing from all the dust. I start to read in a uh, extremist way. I mean, I don't know that I'd read like this since I was uh, dealing with law school, right? And I was so, um, you, you, it's different when you read with a purpose. Like I'm not reading a novel, you know what I mean? Like I'm not gonna say I was enjoying what I was reading, even though I, I really was. I, I started to understand that this was a different level of book. And this was a different level of taking in information. We were digging so deep, it was phenomenal. And then I came across this, and I'm, I'm telling you, man, I was, I was probably reading this book for about two or three days. It was, it, was, uh, it was pretty serious, man. Anytime I could get good lighting, I was reading this book. And I, then I came into this, uh, I came into this very interesting point. And it, I realized uh, probably about halfway through reading this, that this was the answer. And it was called The French Paradox. Now the way the story is told is something like, imagine that you are kicking back on a nice warm day. You have your feet up on the table, you're leaning back in your chair. You got a nice bottle of red wine in your hand and a bowl of peanuts in front of you. Now, as you're just relaxing and munching and doing your thing, having a good day, did you know that you're actually doing something to incredibly improve your health? You are literally protecting yourself from cancer, sharpening your brain against Alzheimer's, and turning back the clock heart disease, heart health, your cardiovascular system, while effectively dealing with and managing and reducing excess weight. Time out. It turns out in the 1980s, uh, scientists started to do these studies on the French. Because the French are a very interesting people. They have this thing called a fat morning. I, that, that, that's absolutely not relevant to anything. I just I, I think that's hilarious to call something a fat morning. Anyways, so they eat uh, starchy foods, these simple carbs, uh, sugars. They, I mean, their, their diets are just full of these things that you would normally think would be terrible especially when it comes to things like blood flow. I mean, sugar is horrible for the vessels. You know, it literally, it just think of like, to, to make this real short, think of like glass just cutting into the vessel and creating a type of um, plaque. You know, as the vessel heals itself, it's a type of plaque. And with every layer of plaque that forms, like a, a scab almost, it, the vessel shrinks. And so the blood flow, the blood pressure then goes up and the blood flow reduces right and this is going to significantly affect areas where you have like capillaries smaller vessels in the fingers and the eyes in the toes and in the brain so how is it possible and, it, oh, and around the heart come on now how is it possible that these people are eating this horrible stuff but at the same time and let me add on their exercise rate at this time in history is not very much different than ours. I mean, they're not that much better than us at this point. However, 
they have way less heart problems than we do. And they're sitting around sipping on uh, burgundy and boudoir and uh, red wine, and they have significantly less heart problems than us. And so they, have, they labeled this time, these scientists labeled this the French paradox because heart disease in this country was through the roof. I mean, it still is through the roof, but in France, super low, the French paradox. So what they did was they started to um, investigate. And I want to explain something to you. There is this thing in the plants, okay? And I'm going to say specifically in grapes and in peanuts, but that's only because that's what they studied. It's not, it's not restricted to those. But there's this thing in the plants that is called resveratrol. And it's produced, now it's actually classified as a polyphenol. And it's responsible for the taste, the color, the smell in the plant world. But what it actually does, its nature, is to protect the plant from stressors like disease, fungus growth, weather events, things like that, right? Almost kind of like nicotine, if you could think of it that way, if you have been listening to the podcast up to this point. So it's, think about it like this is a plant's immune system, right? Like for us, we have an immune system. This is a plant's immune system. That's deep. It, it has both antifungal and antibiotic properties, okay? Based off what I just told you. But resveratrol is also an antioxidant and an anti-inflammatory. I'm going to say that the other way around. It's also an anti-inflammatory and an antioxidant. There we go. Got both of them. Now, I'm feeling real good about this, okay? And I want to tell you that it, uh, the anti-inflammatory activities gives resveratrol this broad range of, um, I'm going to use the word functions, but really like defenses. It helps us in, through this broad range of functions. And I am so excited to get this phone call because I got my mumbo jumbo ready. Okay. So I finally, we get on the phone with my mentor whose uh, veins are probably bulging out of his eyes right now. And he's probably chomping on his teeth. He hates that word. And I, um, I say two words, red wine. You know, you got to say it like that. Red wine. And he's like, okay. And I was thinking about the song. And I was like, maybe they were onto something. And I say, the French paradox. And he's like, oh man, you can read. I'm like, yeah, of course I can read. What are you talking about? He's like, I want you to be honest with me before you start going in to show off. That book was sitting on your dresser for a while and you had not even picked it up. And that's because you didn't pay anything for the book. The book was given to you free, but what if you had paid the going rate for that book? I bet you would have picked it up and read it. It's interesting how we assign value to things. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Time out, time out, time out. Yes, I had been reading the book. He said, when you pick that book up, what page were you on? I said five. 
But the thing is, page five is right after the table of contents. Look, don't judge me. So I was telling him, I want to get to what I've discovered. And then I tell him the whole thing. And he says, all right, so my question to you is, what if a person wants to have resveratrol through a natural organic means, but they don't want to drink? And I say, well, you could have a cup of red grapes, and that would probably be about three times what the glass of wine would have in it. Or you could have a cup of boiled peanuts, and that would be worth even more than the cup of red grapes. And he was like, very good, very good. It can read and recite. You should consider a job as a parent. <laughs> I'm telling you, I like this guy. So I, I go in to ask him, if we're talking about Resveratrol, um, I understand the idea of anti-inflammatory and anti-oxidative. Um, what's the point? He says, well, the point is that just that idea alone should be able to lower your blood sugar, lower your weight, prevent kidney damage, regulate cholesterol, and help you with uh, fighting cancer and Alzheimer's and any nervous illness, any uh, nerve center, central nervous uh, illness. And I'm like, so you're telling me that if I just give my father a cup of grapes, it's going to get rid of his Alzheimer's. It'll certainly help, but there is something much larger that you need to understand. The reason why we did this exercise is because I'm about to bring you into to one of the greatest lies in medical history. And I'm like, oh, wow. This is the reason that this group and these type of groups exist. There is a lie that is being told every day in the medical industry. Okay, I'm biting. He says, I need to show you two things. The first is this. What does your father have? I said, well, um, Alzheimer's. He says, why do you say that? I said, well, uh, we went in, we got tested for it. But you say you don't trust, you don't trust the doctors or the tests. Okay, but you're still going by the test. All right, uh, what's the point? Well, when you emailed me his symptoms, you emailed me some pretty common symptoms, but there were some specific symptoms that you emailed me. A decreased sensitivity to other people's feelings, a lack of empathy. Number two, he was becoming apathetic, sitting on the couch, sitting around, lowering his energy level. Number three, declining social awareness okay that's not Alzheimer's uh, oh wow it was literally sitting in front of my face the entire time this is why it was moving so fast it wasn't Alzheimer's it was frontotemporal dementia and I was classifying it as Alzheimer's. 
He says, son, you're pretty good at English. You got great vernacular. I love when you speak. So I want to ask you a question. And it's an English question. I said, okay, shoot. He says, tell me which sentence is correct. The yolk and the egg is white or the yolk and the egg are white. Which one's right? I said, well, obviously the yolk and the egg is white. He said, actually, the yolk and the egg is yellow. <laughs> you see? You were missing it because you weren't looking in the right place. This is what I'm telling you is going on in the medical industry. People are not looking in the right place. And this lie is creating an illusion that has everyone missing the point. And it is a huge cover-up. And without this information, if you approach any of these illnesses, you will be approaching with the wrong mindset. And that's why it will be ineffective. To learn and understand this, we have to cover a monumental event in history that you will be very hard pressed to find that I call the Great Debate. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. I hope that you had a great time. Um, it is always fantastic to have you guys here. I want to thank you guys so much for the engagement. I want to thank you guys for your, all of your likes and support on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. It's so huge. Thanks for coming by blog post at uh, findthewellspring.org. Thank you guys. If you, if you haven't um, got the Alzheimer's disease, uh, dementia and memory loss book, the ebook, go get it, go get on that blog post, go get it. We always got new stuff coming on there. Um, and we just, we have a great time. And also, if you're not signed up for our newsletter, we hand out fantastic stuff. It's always very small, short, concise, uh, information. And we'll hand out, uh, different meals, desserts that are, that are healthy, that are good for you and that are kind of exotic and from other places. So those are our plugs right there. And, uh, we just tell your friends and your family, come over and join. And if you know anybody who has Alzheimer's, if you know anybody who's battling dementia or really any sickness at all, tell them to tune in, man. We're, we're, we're all about uh, mental health recovery, physical health. We're all about giving out hope. And um, I want to say that for me, uh, my largest internal journey here, I, I want you to take this away because I want you to really take this information and have a great day. At this point, I was, um, I was battling with emotional stability, which you know that I define as um, trying to stay with the emotion in difficult times. And the only way that I was able to come up upon that was learning how to embrace the insecurity, the insecurity of myself, the insecurity of acceptance from other people, the insecurity of the moment. That's where I was at. I was, I was dealing with insecurity and it's so hard to be on the edge or on the verge of something and not know which way it's going to go. Being patient. For me, I thought because I had lost my lab and because I had lost, you know, access to this, that, and, and whatever else, that hope was gone. And sometimes when we sit in this type of hopelessness, no one has ever told us that it's hopeless, but we just lose hope. And it's good to learn how to sit in these areas of insecurity and these areas of fearlessness because it's where we develop uh, an ability to become comfortable with uncertainty and try and remember that no progress occurs inside of your comfort zone. So if you find yourself outside of your comfort zone often, then you know you're making progress. I want to thank you for joining. It's always great to have you here. And we look forward to seeing you or talking to you 